Uh, if you've got a Bible, get to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to finish chapter 20 and then get into chapter 21 today. We are making our final leg through the Gospel of Luke and finishing at, uh, at Easter and the Sunday after Easter. So we are in Luke 20 and 21 today. You and I were created to worship. We were made in the image and likeness of our Lord, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by His loving hands long before our parents knew us. And we've been designed by our Creator to worship Him, to be devoted to Him, where He would have our affection and our allegiance for us to be satisfied in Him and enjoy relationship and communion with Him in this life and for all eternity. Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, that the greatest commandment that we could live out as His created people was to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. Love the Lord, the one who made us in His image, gave breath to our lungs. Be devoted to the Lord with all that we have, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We were created to worship our Creator and worship Him as a way of life. And yet, because of the fall of man in Genesis 3, we are born with a bent toward sin. A bent not toward worship of our Creator, but worship of created things. We believe the lies of our spiritual enemy that these lesser things, these created things, these lifeless idols are worth more of our attention and our affection than the eternal life-giving Lord who created us in His love. And the solution to our misdirected worship is not ignore the sin disease in our hearts or try harder or do better or put on a better show for others to see. Rather, the path toward transformation is through humbling ourselves. It's through trust and surrender. Our salvation in Christ is not through works, but through faith alone and by grace alone, because the good news of Jesus is that our, that our Creator God saw us in our desperate, sin-diseased, hopeless situation and sent His one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. We were born into sin and we are in need of being reborn into Christ to experience a new birth and new life in Jesus. And when we are born again in Christ, God performs a heart transplant. He gives us a new heart. The power of the Holy Spirit changes the directions of our heart from sin-focused to now God-focused. As the Lord said in Ezekiel 36, 26, He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart transplant occurs because we've been born again. And when we, are, when we give our lives to Christ, our hearts are made new and now not directed toward the worship of self and sin, but worship toward the praise of our Savior. For the Christ follower, our new creation in Christ's desire is now to exalt our Savior. Exalt meaning to, to raise high, to lift up, to promote, to make much of. This is what we do as a way of life, not just compartmentalized to a weekly gathering, as a way of life. All of life for the believer in Christ is, is to be Savior-exalting worship, a daily way of life that makes much of Jesus because our hearts have been made new. In the passage that we're looking at today, there are three stories. 
The first story reminds us of the lordship of Jesus. The second and third are are in many ways a contrast between self-exalting worship and Savior-exalting worship. A contrast between religious leaders and the scribes who were seeking to, to make much of, to lift themselves up. The scribes and leaders don't recognize Jesus as Lord, and their knees are bowed to no one but themselves. So as a result, their way of life was not one centered around loving the Lord, or loving neighbor. It was about loving themselves. And Jesus is contrasting the scribes with this widow and her Savior-exalting worship. In her, we see a quiet faith that reveals to us a heart and life that is all in with the Lord, a heart that is seeking to live out the great commandment to love the Lord and love people. We see an example of faith-filled worship that we can learn from, to this day, and I pray that as we look at the Scripture, that we might turn from scribe-like tendencies and turn toward widow-like tendencies and exalt our Savior as a way of life. So the first story, Luke 20, 41 through 44 in the CSB translation, then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says, in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. They are the them in in verse 41 there. The Pharisees, the scribes. We looked at verses 20 through 40 last week where it's Q&A with Jesus and he's interacting with religious leaders. They ask a question trying to trap Jesus and in an effort to question his authority. And so these Jewish leaders that he is speaking to here in this passage are experts in the Old Testament law. They know the Scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. And they know that these Scriptures point to the future reality that in the family line of David, a son would be born who would rule on the throne forever. That son would be the Messiah. Isaiah 9 being one of these examples of a prophetic word pointing forward to the coming messiah verses six through seven in isaiah 9 says for a child will be born for us a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders he will be named wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end he will reign on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever A son of David would be born and he would reign and rule forever. All these leaders know that. And yet they are blind to the reality that Jesus is that very son. And so Jesus takes them to Psalm 110 and quotes verse 1. In 42 there in Luke, he says, For David himself says in the the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. King David, who was greatly revered by these leaders, said, the Lord declared to my Lord, meaning King David calls this future son who will be born, he calls him my Lord. David ascribes authority to him. The normal situation is that the father has authority over a son. But in this case, it's reverse. David, the father, is subject to the son who is the Lord. And Jesus is asking these leaders, how is it that David, the father, can call a son a descendant by the title of Lord? The answer is not a denial that the son is a son. 
or comes from that family line, but it is an implication that the Son is the Messiah. The Son is the one who will sit at the right hand and exercise protection, power, and authority for all eternity, bringing justice to His enemies. The Son will fulfill a prophecy like Isaiah 9, establishing and sustaining His kingdom with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. In verse 44, Jesus is asking the rhetorical questions of the leaders to provoke thought because they've seen Jesus' ministry be one of supernatural power. They've heard of Jesus declaring that He is the Messiah. He did that early on in His ministry. He did that as He entered Jerusalem. His ministry has been one of authority. He speaks with authority, and yet these leaders are missing it. They're blind to the reality that Jesus of Nazareth who they are seeking to kill, who is right in front of them, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And who is the son of David, whose enemies will be bowed before him like a footstool. In his question to them, Jesus is is seeking to get to the heart of the matter. Do you know who I am? To which Jesus knows the answer. They don't. And they won't. They say they know the Scriptures, but their self-righteousness, their self-exalting worship has blinded them. The great King David bows before Jesus as Lord. And yet these stony-hearted leaders won't. Following the resurrection of Jesus and His subsequent ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit is sent to dwell in and empower believers. Peter gets up in Acts 2. The church is launching at Pentecost. He preaches to the crowds that have gathered, the same crowds that earlier had shouted to crucify Jesus Picking up Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes Psalm 110, 1 again. He says, the Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Peter preaches, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What happens next? The power of the Holy Spirit. You see this crowd, and you see 3,000 people repent and be baptized. They accept the words that Peter preached as truth. They turn from their stony, stubborn hearts and the Lord gave them a heart of flesh. They were saved. They were brought into the family of God. May such Savior-exalting repentance describe our way of life here at this church. And yet, sadly, many of the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to here in Luke 20 that even heard Peter's message there in Acts 2, they continue to reject Jesus as Messiah. They are unwilling to repent of their self-exalting worship. They continue to lead people astray. And knowing that's the case, Jesus gives a warning to his disciples in this next story. Starting in verse 45, while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. And the scribes are all the people that are listening. There are some of the people listening. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devoured widows' houses, and they say long prayers just for show. 
these will receive harsher judgment. Beware the scribes. Why? Because if the disciples of Jesus then or now follow their example, it will lead them to a place of self-exalting worship that doesn't honor our Savior Jesus. It will lead disciples away from living out the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love our neighbor. In verse 47, Jesus makes it clear that judgment and condemnation will be the end of the story for the scribes because their hearts will remain stony and stubborn and they will lead others astray. This isn't the first time Jesus has held up the beware, beware, beware of the scribes. He did it in Luke 11, much more extensively even. In the example of the self-righteous scribes here, we, we get a description of self-exalting worship, a way of life that makes much of and promotes me, myself, and I. It's not the way for a follower of Christ. In the scribes, we see that they love the show. They love the show, meaning they love the daily opportunity to give the appearance of righteousness to those around them, and yet at the same time, their hearts remain far from the Lord. Jesus said this in Luke eleven, thirty nine. 39. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, he tells them, you're full of greed and evil, meaning you focus on the outward, the visible parts of life, but at the same time, you neglect the, the inward part of life, and so as a result, you live as hypocrites, he tells them. Your public and your private lives don't match. You're so focused on the outside that you're missing how your inward life, your heart is in desperate need of cleaning. Beware self-exalting leaders. And then Jesus gives descriptions of them. First of all, who go around in long robes. Long robes meaning fancy, expensive outfits. These, these scribes weren't shopping in the back of the store, the clearance section. They weren't concerned about Kohl's cash or, or buy one, get one, or buy one, get one half off. Instead, they were concerned with dressing and carrying themselves in a way where others would say, wow, those guys look awesome. Those guys look regal and prestigious and religious. They want to be seen, and not only that, they want to be revered when people see them. Who love greetings in the marketplace meaning they wanted recognition from others. When, when you were a teacher of the law, others were often required to give you a special greeting when they interacted with you. These scribes love that moment. They love it. Because again, others are witnessing these greetings and attention and spotlight is now upon the scribes. They love the best seats in the synagogue. The best seats meaning the best status. It means to anyone seeing them, we're here, you're there. We're here, you're there. You see that? You see that difference? We are entitled to these seats. You don't get to sit in these seats unless you are righteous like us, is what the scribes are thinking. Who love the places of honor at banquets. At banquets, the seating would often be in the shape of a U, the host sitting at the middle of that. And so the scribes loved to sit as close as possible to the host. Because it was there. That was the greatest place of honor. They wanted to be in the middle of those big conversations. They didn't want to be on the outside saying, hey, what, what are you guys talking about there? What, what are you guys talking about up there? No, they wanted to be at the center of that. Because it was about them. Because their way of life 
was one of self-exalting worship. They devour widows' houses. In that day, a Jewish leader, a Jewish teacher, could not be paid for teaching, but could receive gifts. And apparently, we've seen that, we saw this last week as well, the scribes used flattery and manipulation to get big gifts, including from those who could least afford to give them. The scribes would rob them of their livelihood and take from those in need and then leave them devastated. This could also mean that the scribes served as the landlords to the widow's property and didn't manage in a way that loved their neighbor, but managed in a way that devastated these widows. What is clear is by devouring widows' houses, they are not concerned with loving their neighbor as themselves. Jesus also says they love long prayers just for show. So their logic is the longer the prayer is, the more people will hear and think, wow, do you hear how spiritually mature they are? Wow, they are so righteous. Jesus exposes their motivations here. That the long prayer was not for worship of the Lord, but worship of themselves. It was for show. It wasn't to talk to the Lord longer. It was so that others could hear them pray and then revere them as a result. They weren't interested in the Lord being lifted up or exalted through prayer, but themselves. When we give our lives to Jesus and trust in Him, receiving eternal life, the power of sin is broken in our lives. Jesus broke its power through the cross and the resurrection and our faith in Him. The penalty of sin is removed as well. Jesus bore the wages of sin upon that cross. By His wounds we are healed. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Power broken, penalty removed. And at the same time, the presence of sin still remains in our flesh, this side of heaven. While our identity has been made new, old creation gone, new creation in Christ has come, we also know our flesh is still around. And our flesh is still prone to one thing, self-exalting worship. So while the scribe's eternal destination is one of judgment and condemnation, and a believer's eternal destination is one of life, rest, joy, delight, freedom, glory, while we know that our eternal destination is different, we must be on guard against scribe-like desires of our flesh that are still there, still lurking around. Brothers and sisters, you and I are saved by grace alone. We did nothing in our power to earn the affection and acceptance of the Lord. Romans 6 tells us that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. We are saved by grace, not by works, so our Christian life is not lived out in order to put on a show for others. It's lived out to make much of Jesus our Savior. We want Him to be glorified through our way of life. We want Him, not us, to be praised through our good works. We can confess our sin, our weakness, our need to one another in the family of God because we're saved by grace. We receive and are shown the Lord's grace through one another, fellow siblings in the family. If we think we are saved by works, which the scribes did here, then when the show of our lives is good, we'll show up. We'll walk in the light because, man, that show is good looking. 
But when the show of our lives, so to speak, is bumpy, messy, rough, sin-filled, marked by suffering or struggle, then we will be prone to disappear and hide if we think we're saved by works. Or we'll work so hard at keeping up with appearances. Or we'll look laterally to those around us and we'll either be condemned, self-condemning, or we will puff up with self-righteousness because there are always other people around us who we can look better than. The internet has opened up that opportunity, right? Loved ones, through faith alone and by grace alone, the good news of Jesus is that we've, been, we've received His righteousness. He took on our unrighteousness and sin, and we are now holy in the sight of the Lord. And out of that new identity, we pursue to live a life of growing holiness, walking in the light of His grace and truth that continually transforms us. As Paul says in Philippians 2, we want to be a people who adopt the attitude of Christ, who humbled himself, humbled himself, who became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and now Jesus is highly exalted. His name is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King David bowed. That's the first story. The second story, the scribes were unwilling to bow to anyone but themselves. And now Jesus takes us to the final story. A widow whose way of life bowed in worship to her Savior. Verse 1 through 4 in chapter 21. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. The Lord sees a long line of people giving their offerings in these boxes that were set up at the temple. And these funds were used to underwrite worship at the temple. These were free will offerings, meaning people can give what they want to give. And among this line of people, there are wealthy, there are poor, as Jesus is seeing them all drop in their offerings, and he notices a poor widow. And she drops in two tiny coins is how the CSB translates it. Your translation may say mites, M-I-T-E-S. The coins she drops in is the smallest denomination of coins at the time. A mite or these two copper coins was the equivalent of 1% of a daily wage. The Greek word for what she's dropping in means a crumb or a very small morsel, a tiny thing. And she possessed two such crumbs, two such tiny things, and she put in all that she had to live on. As Jesus said, she has put in more than all of them in the line of this people. The financial amount was minuscule, but compared to what she possessed, the amount was immense. The financial amount that the wealthy had put in was small compared to what they possessed. Jesus is not putting down the contribution of the others in this offering line. Rather, he's drawing attention to the widow's gift and her worship and trust, a gift that was so quiet, so unseen by others, and yet the Lord Jesus sees it because in earthly terms, her gift is barely noticeable in earthly terms, but not to the Lord. To the Lord, it's worshipful. And he's telling his disciples, 
Beware the scribes, but you can learn something from this widow. You can learn something from her. You can learn what it looks like to worship. So what are some lessons on worship we can learn? First of all, we see that one way we worship our Savior is through being generous with money. This is why we tuck our our offering time, our prayer for that time in the midst of singing. Because all of life is worship. This is one way we seek to live out the greatest commandment to love the Lord and love others. All of life is worship. And money fits under that umbrella of all of life. So as it relates to money, from the widow's example, how might we worship well in a Savior-exalting way? What are principles that we can see not only from her life, but from the counsel of God's Word? Two big ideas for us today. The first is this, give in a way that leads you to trust in the Lord with your daily life. Give in a way that leads you to trust in the Lord with your daily life. This is how the widow gave. She was willing to give all she had because she trusted the Lord would still meet her needs. This offering is an act of great faith. It is clear she walks by faith and not by sight. If he can provide the first coins, then he can provide additional coins. If he's been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future. She knows this. In Matthew 6, when Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven and not in earthly things. And then he says in verses 24 and 25 in Matthew 6, he says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other or he, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've always found it encouraging that the very next subject that Jesus deals with in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 is the subject of anxiety and worry. That we are not to worry about tomorrow. For if God takes care of the birds of the, uh, of the air and the flowers of the field, then we can trust in Him. Jesus says, starting in verse 31 of Matthew 6, so don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The widow is living out the teaching of Jesus here. She is seeking first the kingdom of God and his father and her father in heaven will take care of her. For some of you, worry about tomorrow. The anxiety of the what if hinders your generosity. It hinders your, your, your walking by faith. It hinders your trust in the Lord as a daily way of life. May we learn from the widow here. May we give in a way that leads us to trust and walk by faith. The second Savior-exalting worship principle we can learn from, from the widow is this. Give in a way that leads to your growing devotion to the Lord and not money. Give in a way that leads, where, leads your heart to a growing devotion to the Lord and not to money. When Heather and I give financially, one thing that is happening spiritually in my heart and in Heather's heart is we are attacking the idol of money. That we're actively and intentionally confessing both our temptation toward that idol because we're on this side of heaven and that we want to have no other gods before our one true God. 
there should be a sacrificial element to our giving toward the Lord and His work. It should cause us to have to say no to some things of this earth. We see that in the widow. There is a radical, worshipful nature to her level of generosity. Somewhere along the line over the past several years, I've heard people say, give until it hurts and then give some more. Right? Give until it hurts and then give some more. I get what they're saying. I don't think it's good counsel. I don't think it's good counsel. I don't think it's what the widow is doing here. Rather, I would say give in a way where your heart is going to grow in worship of the Lord and not money. Give in a way that says, I'm seeking first His kingdom and His name and His glory and His righteousness above all. Give in a way that says we really believe, 1 Timothy 6, 6, that says godliness with contentment is great gain. You're concerned about gains? I'm concerned about gains. Well, 1 Timothy 6, 6 says godliness with contentment is great gain. Give in a way that reveals that we really believe the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 21 that says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Your heart follows where we put our treasure. If we put it in earthly things, your heart follows. If we store up treasure in heaven, your heart follows. Give in a way that causes us to say no to earthly things, to lesser things. For some of you, your unwillingness to say no to earthly things that will rust and wear out is hindering your generosity. It's hindering your ability, your willingness, your joyful willingness to walk by faith. May we give in a way that leads our hearts to this growing devotion to the Lord. May we follow the example of the widow here whose quiet faith, hope, and love exalted the Savior that we join her in worship to this day. If you're newer to the Scriptures, I'd encourage you to read 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, both extensive passages that talk about the subject of money and giving and what the Scriptures say about that. Jesus is after your heart our brothers and sisters, because He is Lord, a good, loving, gracious Lord. By grace alone, He's brought us into His kingdom for such a time as this, so that with the breath of our lungs, the hours of our days, the the actions of our hands, the attitude of our hearts, the money that we've been entrusted with by the Lord, that with all of life we might worship Him wholeheartedly, that we'd, we'd reject that tendency that we all have to make it about us. And we would pursue a way of life that makes it all about Jesus, where He is promoted, where He is lifted up, where He is magnified, and He is exalted through our daily way of life. Big moments, small moments, everywhere in between. Lord Jesus, it is good to gather alongside your family this morning. It is good to be able to sing and give and fellowship and greet and open up our Bibles and to be transformed by your grace and your spirit and your word long before we bowed our knees to you you bowed your life to death you laid down your sinless life so that we might be rescued and redeemed from our sinful bent to worship ourselves while we were still wandering and straying you bore the weight of all our sin its penalty its wages and you paid it in full on the cross you you declared it is finished because you're Sacrifice is sufficient for all past, present, and future sin. You broke the power of sin. 
when you rolled back that stone and walked out on the third day, one sweet day when we are face to face with you, the presence of sin will be no more. Until that day, Lord, as we eagerly wait for you and watch expectantly, we pray that by your grace and spirit, you might help us make progress in living lives that exalt you, our Savior. Lives where we decrease and you increase. Lives that bring you praise, that promote and lift up your name, that show and tell of your grace and truth to the world. Remind us this week and the coming weeks of the the big and little moments that are before us day in and day out, that the deepest joy and rest are found in lives of Savior-exalting worship. And when we are tempted to live for the show and make it about us, when we are tempted to run and hide in shame or condemnation, remind us there's no condemnation for those in Christ. When we are tempted to puff up with self-righteousness like that of a scribe, remind us that we are in desperate need of your grace and your Spirit's work in us. Remind our new creation hearts of how good it is to walk in the light of your grace. You're more than able to bring about this transforming work in our lives, and so we trust you. We depend upon you, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Paul gives this charge to Timothy, but it would apply to all his disciples. He says in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 11, But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in His own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal power. Amen.